We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Away we go, episode 325 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Tuesday, May 31st, 2022, the final day in the month of May. Uh, It is the day on which the commanders are beginning their second batch of OTA practices this offseason. This is the day after the Maryland men's lacrosse team won the NCAA National Championship, a 9-7 win for the number one Terrapins over number seven Cornell in Connecticut. A congratulations to head coach John Tillman and his Terps. 18-0, a perfect season. Perfection. Maryland set an NCAA record for most wins in a season without a loss in becoming the first undefeated NCAA men's lacrosse champion since 2006 when Virginia when 17 and 0. There ain't no part of the country that does lacrosse, that does lax, as well as the Mid-Atlantic region does lax. Uh, so many high schools in this area have great lacrosse programs. So many colleges in this area have great lacrosse programs. And in 2022, the top lax program is that of Maryland. If only, if only Maryland's football and basketball programs were as good as the school's men's lacrosse program is. But that's a conversation for another time. Hello and welcome to a Tuesday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Hope that you had a nice Memorial Day weekend. Hope that you had a good time doing Memorial Day weekend things on Memorial Day weekend. Uh, we did Memorial Day weekend things. We went to the pool. Uh, we mowed the lawn. We ate hamburgers. We watched sports. Uh, I did not watch, though, the new Top Gun movie, Top Gun Maverick, although the word is that the movie is outstanding, and it certainly had a monster opening weekend, a projected 151 million dollars at the box office. Uh, Not bad. Not bad. You know, Tom Cruise will turn 60 on July 3rd. Yes, Tom Cruise is going to turn 60 this summer. He still looks like he's 30. And by the way, you know with whom Tom has had an association, don't you? Dan Snyder. Yes, Tom Tom and Danny Boy. Uh, August 2006, Dan Snyder and other investors signed a deal to provide financing to a production company 
that was run in part by Tom Cruise. And there was a famous scene of Dan, Tom, and Tom's then wife, Katie Holmes, a.k.a. Joey from Dawson's Creek, uh, at a Redskins-Minnesota Vikings game at FedEx Field in week one of the 2006 season. Well, I'm not sure if Dan and Tom still are pals, but I do know this. There's a lot going on with our commander's owner, Dan Snyder, these days. Uh, This week is a big week in the stadium situation. We, on Wednesday, expect to find out the fate of a Virginia stadium financing plan for the commanders. In the meantime, a special guest is coming up on this installment of the Al Galdi podcast, Michael Schaefer. Uh, Michael Schaefer is a senior editor at Politico. Uh, He is a native of the Washington, D.C. area. His Capital City column runs weekly in Politico magazine. And Michael's most recent column was about the partisan nature of what's going on with Dan Snyder. Headline, Dan Snyder's secret weapon, Republicans. Investigators are circling and fellow NFL owners are fuming, but on Capitol Hill, D.C.'s least popular man is a surprise partisan cause. Uh, This was a really interesting piece on something that I've talked about and that really has been undeniable, the partisan divide in Congress regarding Dan Snyder. Democrats are for Congress investigating Dan and the commanders. Republicans are against Congress investigating Dan and the commanders. And so Michael and I will explore the Capitol Hill dynamics of the Dan Snyder situation and how Dan may be using those dynamics to his advantage. Uh, Next segment, I'll address the commander's news from our Memorial Day Monday. Commander senior pro scout Don Warren is retiring. Uh, Don Warren, of course, is an all-time great Redskins tight end. Uh, So I'll discuss his legacy with the franchise and what his departure from the commander's front office helps to highlight. Uh, Also on the show, I'll talk Nationals. Uh, You know, the Nats had this nice series win over the Colorado Rockies at Nationals Park Thursday through Sunday, won three or four games. And then we had to have what we had on Monday night, a 13-5 loss at the National League East leading New York Mets. Uh, Eric Fetty, who had been good so far this season, got ripped on Monday night. And there are ramifications from this beyond just what happened on Monday night, I shall explain. Uh, Also, I'll talk Orioles. Uh, They too were involved in a rout on Monday night. But for them, this was a victorious rout, a 10-0 win at the Boston Red Sox to win what was a five-game series at Fenway Park Three games to two. Uh, What a wild series this was for the O's. A lot for us to get into with them. Uh, You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Eddie and Silver Spring on (laughs) Bite D's. If you know of what I speak, then no further explanation is needed. Bite D's. If you do not know of what I speak, quick refresher. Uh, The defensive coordinator of our commanders, Jack Del Rio, He last Thursday night in a quote tweet response to a troll on Twitter tweeted, quote, bite D's, end quote. Uh, I discussed this in the first segment of last Friday's show, episode 324. Writes Eddie, you you had me laughing like a fool this morning with Jack Del Rio's response, appropriateness be damned, that's just funny. We can only hope it's the start of a new hashtag campaign for the commanders. Hashtag bite D's. 
Maybe I should start producing the t-shirts now. A photo of Jack stalking the sidelines with hashtag bite D's displayed just below his midsection. Keep up the good work. Hope you enjoyed grilling some plain chicken breasts for your Memorial Day picnic. Well, thank you for that, Eddie. Uh, No, I did not have any plain chicken breasts over the weekend. Uh, My wife did make hamburgers on Saturday night and salmon on Sunday night. So we did eat well, but no plain chicken breasts. Uh, And yes, I am totally with you on the potential for bite D's as a hashtag. Now, the commander's defense needs to first be good, okay? We cannot start a hashtag campaign and then the defense gets off to another debacle of a start like what we saw from Washington's defense last September and October. But, but, if the commander's defense gets off to a good start and we are feeling good about the job that Jack Del Rio is doing, then heck yeah. hashtag bite these can become a thing. We already have hashtag take command and hashtag HTTC. Why not hashtag bite these, okay? That fits right in with hashtag take command and hashtag HTTC. Email from Jim D on the Commander Stadium situation. By the way, in case you missed it, a great breakdown of the Commander Stadium situation in Virginia from Commander's Insider Michael Phillips of Richmond.com on last Friday's show episode 324, writes Jim, happy Memorial Day weekend to you and yours. After all of the craziness with the stadium saga that has unfolded, I just have to give my piece. When I first heard the land was claimed in Woodbridge, I was a little unsure about the travel for those further out since there is no metro station out there, as many have pointed out. However, as a Prince William County resident myself, and with Woodbridge being a mere 20 minutes away, I was stoked at the possibility of having my favorite sports team in the whole wide world being stationed right here. Another reason why I can't stand some of the reactions from the DC elitists, as you call them, have they seen where Levi Stadium is relative to San Francisco? But it was crazy hearing State Senator Peterson bury the team like that, saying an NFL franchise is not viable. What do you think is the real motive for him turning? Because I'm still confused. I'm just praying this all doesn't lead to a move. It's crazy seeing some fans being so fed up that they want to see Dan move the team out of here. Uh, Thank you for the email, Jim. Uh, Yes, that is crazy to see. And I am not on board with that line of thinking. I have never been on board with that line of thinking. I am not rooting for the commanders to relocate, okay? I think that's that's a pretty sick and twisted thing to be rooting for. Uh, But yeah, Virginia State Senator Chap Peterson, in a statement that came out last Wednesday night, said that he no longer supports a commander stadium funding plan in Virginia, Uh, said that he doesn't have confidence in the commander's, quote, as a viable NFL franchise, end quote, and said that he doesn't think that the commander's, quote, have the community support to survive, end quote. Now, as I said on last Thursday's show, episode 323. The idea that the commanders may not be viable as an NFL franchise is ridiculous given the NFL's national television contracts and given the size and lucrative nature of the Washington, D.C. market. I have since heard Chap Peterson do multiple interviews, and what I think is clear is that his statement was poorly worded and did not convey exactly what he's thinking. His main point seems to be that the commanders right now lack the metrics, uh, attendance, television ratings, merchandise sales, etc. The commanders right now lack the metrics that make you feel confident that the state of Virginia would be doing a deal for $350 million toward a commander stadium project that would be worthwhile for the state 
of Virginia. And I get where Chap Peterson is coming from with that. I mean, look, it's debatable whether any government ever should give money to a major pro sports team to build a stadium, given that these stadiums are so hit and miss in terms of truly benefiting the communities in which the stadiums are in. Uh, So when it comes to why Chap Peterson and others in the Virginia State Senate feel that a Virginia stadium funding plan for the commanders is a bad idea, I think that the reasons are, number one, doing a deal that gives Dan Snyder hundreds of millions of dollars isn't politically advisable right now, given all of the controversy swirling around him. Number two, doing a deal that gives a football team and the commanders hundreds of millions of dollars with the team being at a modern day popularity low point isn't politically advisable. And number three, doing a deal that gives hundreds of millions of dollars to any sports team at any point for a stadium is questionable to begin with. However, what I do think that Chap Peterson and others aren't properly recognizing are three things. Number one, that the commanders, even with all of their problems, still are the top sports entity in the Washington, D.C. area, and it's really not even close. Uh, Number two, that the commanders are a team in a league called the National Football League, uh, for which there is a popularity that cannot be overstated. And number three, that the team now known as the Commanders, if it ever actually becomes truly good again, still has a great chance of seeing all of the current metrics that are down surge. Of course, we have been waiting and waiting and waiting for the team to become truly good again for a very long time. I get that. Uh, And when it comes to the Commanders potentially relocating, look, maybe I'm naive. I don't see that. As I have said, Washington, D.C. is a top 10 television market. It is a very lucrative market. It is a market with a number of high-end businesses and practices. This is a market with a lot of disposable income. The Washington, D.C. market includes three very rich counties in Montgomery County, Maryland, Fairfax County, Virginia, and Loudoun County, Virginia. The NFL doesn't want its team based in the D.C. area to leave the D.C. area. The NFL doesn't want to not be in the D.C. area. Trust me on that. I think that the NFL would oust Dan Snyder as owner of the team before allowing him to move the team to another city. The NFL is about one thing above all else, money. And having a team in the Washington, D.C. area helps to make the NFL money, okay? As Jay Gruden said in 2018 about Kirk Cousins, I think it's all about, probably all about the money, I guess. Yes. Thank you, Jay. It's all about the money. Okay. This is not complicated. When in doubt, figure out the money. Okay. The NFL isn't just going to say no thank you to all of the money in the Washington, D.C. area. The Washington, D.C. area is a great area. Of course, that also means that buying a home in the D.C. area can be tricky. And so that's why if you are wanting to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, you got to get with Kellen Hunt. Visit CloseItWithKell.com. That's CloseItWithKell, K-E-L-L.com. Book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs and make sure that you tell Kell that Al Galdi sent you. The D.C. area real estate market is hot. Homes are going under contract quickly after they are listed. And that and low inventory mean that if you're wanting to buy a home in the D.C. area, you need a smart realtor who can put together an offer that wins. This is where Kellen Hunt comes in. He wins. Uh, Kellen Hunt understands the D.C. area real estate market, and he is here for you to listen to what you want and then get you what you want. 
No matter your age, family situation, or financial situation, Kellen Hunt can help you. Kellen Hunt is a real estate agent for real people. He has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to local neighborhoods, economical development, schools, market conditions, and all that makes the Washington, D.C. area unique. And Kellen Hunt is willing to put a portion of his commission back in your pocket. Yes, you, the buyer, get a piece of the action. Kellen Hunt knows what buyers like you are facing, and he wants to help. So visit CloseItWithKell.com. That's CloseItWithKell, K-E-L-L.com. Book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs, and make sure that you tell Kell that Al Galdi sent you. You have nothing to lose. Visit CloseItWithKell.com. Book your introductory call with Kellen Hunt at CloseItWithKell.com. If you are trying to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, you will do well. By going with Kel. Visit closeitwithkel.com and tell Kel that Al Galdi sent you. All right, before we get to my conversation with Michael Schaefer, senior editor at Politico, about the partisan divide regarding Congress's investigation into Dan Snyder and the commanders, we on Monday, we on Memorial Day, uh, did have some commanders' news and That news was that Don Warren is retiring. Uh, Don Warren, a.k.a. Donnie Warren, a.k.a. Dutch, is retiring. Uh, Don Warren had been a senior pro scout for Washington since July 2020. Uh, This was his second stint as a scout for Washington. He was a pro scout for the Redskins from 2005 to 2009. He, in between his two stints as a scout for Washington, worked for, yes, the Carolina Panthers. Uh, Don Warren worked as a pro scout for the Panthers from June 2010 to July 2020. So even as someone with deep ties to the Redskins ended up being a commander, as Don Warren worked with Ron Rivera for years during Ron's time as Panthers head coach. Ron was the Panthers head coach from January 2011 to December 2019. Of course, Don Warren also is one of the best tight ends in Redskins history. Don Warren, to me, is the best blocking tight end in Skins history. You can't say that he's the best tight end in Skins history because he wasn't close to the pass-catching threat that guys like Jerry Smith and Chris Cooley were. But in terms of a pure blocking tight end, in terms of a mauler on the edge, to me, there has never been a better guy for the Skins than Donnie Warren. Uh, The Skins took Warren in the fourth round of the 1979 NFL Draft at a San Diego State, he played for the Skins for 14 seasons, 1979 through 1992. So he played for the Skins for the entirety of the glory days with Joe Gibbs as head coach. The glory days with Joe Gibbs as Skins head coach were 1982 through 1992. Don Warren was a part of all three of the Skins Super Bowl championship teams, those for the 1982, 87, and 91 seasons. Uh, Also during that run was another NFC championship, this for the 1983 season. Now, Don Warren over his 14 NFL regular seasons only totaled 244 receptions and seven receiving touchdowns. Again, he was not a big-time pass-catching threat as a tight end. His primary job was to block. His primary job was to pave the way for running backs like John Riggins and Joe Washington and George Rogers and Timmy Smith and Ernest Biner and pave the way Don Warren did. Uh, You know, Don Warren was a tight end, but he was a member of the Hawks. Uh, Don Warren and my good friend, my pal, Rick Doc Walker, were tight ends who were hogs because of their blocking excellence. You really can't say enough 
about how great of a blocking tight end Don Warren was. Uh, he now is 66. He has more than earned his retirement. So a salute to Donnie Warren on the Al Galdi podcast. I would say that Don Warren is a top three tight end in Redskins slash Washington football team slash commander's history. My top three tight ends in the history of the franchise would be number one, Jerry Smith, number two, Chris Cooley, and number three, Don Warren. And then guys like Gene Fugit and Clint Didier and Jordan Reed could round out the top five. I would have Reed number four and then either Fugit or Didier at number five. You can make the case for either guy. But the point is that Don Warren is a Redskins legend. Uh, So congrats to him on his retirement. What I also want to note, though, with Don Warren retiring is this. Uh, This is the second significant change to the commander's scouting staff in recent days. Sheldon White had been a college scout for the commanders, although he was only just hired in May 2021. But the Pittsburgh Steelers have just hired Sheldon White as their director of pro scouting. Uh, Sheldon White is best known for having worked for the Detroit Lions for nearly 19 years, June 1997 to January 2016. In fact, when the Lions in November 2015 fired current Commanders General Manager Martin Mayhew as Lions GM, it was Sheldon White who took over as interim GM for the Lions. But in looking at the Commanders' current front office, what's interesting to me is this. As much change as there has been at and near the top of the front office, The scouting staff has largely remained the same as it was before Ron Rivera was hired as head coach. Uh, We think so often about things having changed so much since the Redskins hired Ron as head coach in January 2020, and things have changed a lot. But specific to the scouting staff for the commanders, that really hasn't changed that much. So again, the Skins hired Ron as head coach in January 2020. He then, in the 2021 offseason, revamped the front office. Uh, Ron, in January 2021, hired Martin Mayhew as general manager and Marty Herney as executive vice president of football slash player personnel. Ron, in February 2021, hired Chris Polian as director of pro personnel. And also in February 2021, it was the announcement of the promotion of Eric Stokes to senior director of player personnel. So a lot of change for the team at near the top of the front office since Ron Rivera took over as head coach. But if you look at the commander's actual scouting staff, it's comprised of a lot of people who have been with the team for a while. Uh, This guy, Tim Gribble, is the commander's director of college personnel. He has been with the team since 2002. Uh, Brent Caprio is a pro scout for the commanders. He has been with the team since 2017. Connor Berenger is a pro scout for the commanders. He has been with the team since 2019. And by the way, Connor Berenger is an alum of Pro Football Focus. He spent the 2018 season working for PFF as a football analyst. Uh, David Whittington is a national scout for the commanders. He has been with the team since 2009. Chuck Cook is a college scout for the commanders. He has been with the team since 2017. Peter Piccarelli is a college scout for the commanders. He has been with the team since 2017. Harrison Richer is a college scout for the Commanders. He has been with the team since 2017. Paul Scanzi is a college scout for the Commanders. He has been with the team since 2017. Uh, Roger Terry is a college scout for the Commanders. He has been with the team since 2015. You get the idea. 
Uh, the commander's top player personnel people are all guys who have come to the team within the last two and a half years, but the actual scouting staff of the commanders is made up of a lot of guys who have been with the team for years. Well, getting the job done for years as a top law firm in the nation's capital is Paulson and Nace. Paulson and Nace is a Washington, D.C.-based family law firm that handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, and consumer protection cases, offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C., and West Virginia. The law firm of Paulson and Nace is always there for you. Paulson and Nace can help your family make difficult decisions, and Paulson and Nace is excellent at what it does. Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars for the sick and injured. I've known the Naces for 25 plus years. These are good people. These are smart people. Chris Nace is a past president of the D.C. Trial Lawyers. Matt Nace is a member of the board of the D.C. Trial Lawyers. It's very simple. We have a saying on this podcast for Paulson and Nace. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. Uh, if you feel that you've been wronged, if you think that you've been wronged but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace. See what Paulson and Nace has to say. Schedule a no-obligation appointment. You're obligated to nothing. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. When you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. But schedule a no-obligation appointment by calling 202-902-7611. You can also visit paulsonandnace.com. That's paulsonandnace.com. And don't forget to tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. When tragedy happens, let the family of Paulson and Nace take care of your family. Well, we know that this Wednesday, June 1st, is a big day for the Commanders in their stadium saga. Uh, that day is the deadline by which the Virginia State Senate needs to pass a Commander's Stadium funding plan if a stadium funding plan is going to be approved this year. Uh, it is on June 1st that the State Senate is going to approve a state budget. Uh, if there is an agreed-upon conference report for the stadium funding plan, then the plan will be voted on. 40 people would vote, and if the plan passes, then the plan will move to the Virginia House of Delegates. But if there is no agreed-upon conference report for the stadium funding plan, then the plan will die, and any Virginia stadium funding plan for the commanders wouldn't happen until at least 2023 if a Virginia stadium funding plan happens at all. Support in the Virginia Senate for a commander stadium funding plan seemingly has lessened given a number of Virginia state senators who have come out and said that they are against the commander stadium funding plan. But what's notable is that most, if not all, of the Virginia state senators who have publicly said that they're against the commander stadium funding plan are Democrats. Uh, now, that may sound familiar to you. A big reason, of course, that momentum for a Virginia stadium funding plan for the commanders has slowed down greatly is Dan Snyder, especially the controversy that has continued to consume him and the team, right? The workplace misconduct scandal, the financial scandal, and Congress looking into those scandals. And regarding that congressional involvement, what has stood out about that is an extreme partisan nature. Democrats in Congress are for the involvement. Republicans in Congress are against the involvement. Well, I'm very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now, Michael Schaefer. He is a senior editor at Politico. 
His Capital City column runs weekly in Political Magazine, and his most recent column was about the partisan nature of what's going on with Dan Snyder. Headline, Dan Snyder's Secret Weapon, Republicans. Investigators are circling and fellow NFL owners are fuming, but on Capitol Hill, D.C.'s least popular man is a surprise partisan cause. Uh, Additionally, Michael was an editor for the Washington City paper in 2011 when Dan Snyder famously sued the Washington City paper. So we got to get into that. Uh, Michael is a native Washingtonian. You can follow Michael on Twitter at Michael Schaefer. Michael, it's very nice to have you on the podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, the partisan nature of congressional involvement in the commander scandals is undeniable. You in the column wrote, quote, the tone of the GOP pushback has been less pro-Snyder than anti-anti-Snyder, end quote. And I thought that that was a good way of putting things. Is it as simple as Republicans in Congress are against Congress's involvement in the commander scandals because Republicans are predisposed now to be against anything that Democrats are in favor of and vice versa? Or is the situation not quite that simple? You know, I think you, you pretty much got it. And, you know, I think of Snyder as like, he was like the last uniter in Washington, right? Democrats and Republicans and D.C. and Maryland and Virginia and black and white and, and newcomer and longtime resident like me. Uh, everyone can't stand him. Um, uh, and uh, then it gets to Capitol Hill where the kind of muscle memory of partisanship kicks in and uh, they got to go and ruin it. That's a great phrase, the muscle memory of partisanship. Uh, I have felt for a while that the partisan nature of congressional involvement in the commander scandals is something that Dan Snyder could use to his advantage. Uh, We know how divided that the country is. Uh, I have felt that if Team Dan portrayed Congress investigating him as a political witch hunt, then there would be plenty of people who would buy into that. And sure enough, you and your piece said something that I had not read or heard previously that Dan has hired Risa Heller, a top political communications pro with long political experience as Chuck Schumer's communications chief, as well as stints representing Jared Kushner's family company and Ivanka Trump. Interesting that Risa has worked for both Chuck Schumer and the Trump family, but uh, what do you make of Dan hiring Risa Heller? You know, I've been, uh, I'm a native Washingtonian, I've been a journalist for 25 years, I've always been amazed at how blunderous the uh, the commanders and Snyder's personally uh, PR apparatus is. Uh, but she's a pro, you know, and, and because this is sort of a partisan setup up there, you could have any cause in the world, no matter how horrible, and about 45% of people in Congress would be on your side because the others, 55% wouldn't be. And uh, they have, um, b- because of that, you've kind of got to set up so that you can actually watchdog for overreach. And there's some stuff that the majority, the Democrats, have done in this uh, investigation that, uh, in the right hands, can be portrayed as, hey, that's a little bit much. Like, why you got to make such a big deal about this uh, uh, this stuff with the Kenny Chesney tickets? Um, you know, from the team's point of view, you know, they're making a, they're, they're writing a public letter based on the testimony of one person to their committee, and we, don't, we haven't even vetted them, and so on. That uh, to them looks like they're kind of the full weight of Congress is being used to vilify them unfairly. And it's actually not, uh, I don't know that I agree with it, but it's not a bad move from a PR strategy point of view. 
Yeah, I agree. I do think that that's a smart public relations strategy on the part of Dan Snyder. So the job of Risa Heller for Dan Snyder simply is to frame things having to do with congressional involvement in the commander scandals in as pro-Dan of a way as possible. I mean, I think that's the job of any, you know, spokesperson slash political consultant. I assume that any anyone who's good will also be giving advice about, you know, here's a member you can work with and here's some some rhetoric you can use that is effective and here's some stuff that wouldn't be so effective. Uh, but yeah, the, the, uh, the, any communicator is going to try to frame the facts on the ground as we all agree about them uh, in a way that is most favorable to their client. And in, and in Snyder's case, usually the facts are very against the client, but in this case, there's some stuff that actually can be, uh, can be used advantageously. I am a Commanders fan. I do not want Dan Snyder owning the team. He has done a terrible job as owner of the team. I don't know how anyone could dispute that. That said, the truth about these allegations matters. You can't just oust Dan as owner of the team based on things that aren't true. I also do wonder if his politics have at all played a role in Democrats in Congress being so gung-ho about going after him. Not that Dan's politics are the reason that Congress is investigating him. I'm not trying to say that this is a political witch hunt, but Congress picks and chooses who and what it investigates. It's debatable whether Congress should even be investigating a football team, as messed up as that football team uh, may have been or may be. Uh, But according to Federal Election Commission records, Dan donated $1.1 million to Donald Trump. If Dan had donated $1.1 million to Joe Biden, do you think that Congress would be investigating Dan Snyder? In other words, does Dan having been a Trump supporter make going after him more palatable for Democrats in the House of Representatives? It probably makes him marginally more palatable, but honestly, if you look at his political giving, it's not like he's a huge Republican player. You know, most of his most of his donations have been in Maryland or Virginia. He's a Maryland resident. He's a Virginia businessman. These are pretty reasonable places to give to. He did give a million dollars to uh, Trump's inaugural. That's a big deal. But it's not like he's a person who is giving to every last Republican candidate in North Dakota or something like that. So uh, I don't think that's really the motivation on either side. I think it's more that this the subject matter at hand in this investigation, which is the toxic workplace environment uh, at the commanders and these like really serious allegations, that's kind of catnip for Democrats right now. And so much of the Republican rhetoric now has become pushing back against the excess of wokeness or whatever, uh, that pushing back against it is pretty irresistible for a lot of Republicans, too. So that's interesting. So you also don't see Dan Snyder as having given money to Donald Trump as a primary reason for Republicans in Congress being against congressional involvement in the commander scandals. I think so. I mean, I don't like... Uh, you know, I, look, and I, I'm usually willing to, to attribute all kinds of base motives to people in politics, but I don't think this is a case where, like, hey, let's protect Snyder and then he'll give us some money. Yeah, uh, I don't, I don't think that's what's going on. We're talking with Michael Schaefer, senior editor at Politico, about the partisan divide regarding Congress's investigation into Dan Snyder and the commanders. So this recent mini controversy, uh, Representative Raja Krishnamurthy is a Democrat who represents the Eighth District of Illinois. He has been among those members of Congress who have led its investigation into the commander scandals, and he canceled a fundraiser for May 10th because of what ended up being a really bad look for the fundraiser. It was scheduled by these two Democratic lobbyists, Tom and Mike Monados. Uh, Tom Monados runs the site FireDanSnyder.org, 
And the fundraiser was promoted as being a chance to hear Krista Morthy discuss having, quote, found a path to getting rid of Snyder. End quote. Uh, You're not supposed to connect fundraising to specific congressional actions. Was this whole ordeal significant? Was it overblown? Does the ordeal validate this idea that politics are behind Congress investigating Dan Snyder and the team? Should we not read that much into what happened? Uh, what do you take away from the Krishnamurthy fundraiser situation? I don't actually think it's that big a deal. Look, I think um, the, the, uh, uh, Tom and Mike uh, Manitos, they are, you know, they, I, I, they were sort of, I, I assume they're a lot like a lot of people I went to high school with. They're sort of super fans of the team and have always been and are uh, grossed out by how bad they've become more than anything else. Uh, uh, one of them... Uh, uh, runs uh, in his sort of spare time runs this Fire Dan Snyder website, um, but their day jobs are as lobbyists. And what lobbyists do is they throw fundraisers. So they say, "Aha, let's uh, let's throw a fundraiser for this guy who's doing good investigating that we like." There's nothing wrong with any of that. The uh, the the language uh, of the invite was something they shouldn't have done. They had to they had to cancel it because of that. But I don't think. I mean, it certainly plays into if you, if you are. Uh, Team Snyder, and you want to characterize yourself as being uh, persecuted by a Congress that is out of control. Uh, this certainly helps with that narrative. I don't know that it's actually proof of that, but it was. But but since so much of politics is perception, uh, I think that they kind of walked into a to a, a mistake there. And of course, perception often is reality uh, in politics uh, and in sports and in life. Uh, So we have the midterms coming up, and there is a belief that a massive red wave is coming. We'll see if that happens. Is a big red wave, is a red tidal wave the key for Dan Snyder here with this congressional involvement in the commander's scandals? Is it as simple as if Republicans take back control of the House of Representatives, then Congress investigating Dan and the commanders is over? Yeah, I think I think that that if if uh, there's a red wave, that the oversight committee is going to drop this thing, and um, and that's uh, that will help out Snyder because these hearings have been quite embarrassing. They're full of bad details for him. It will probably help out the NFL because similarly, I mean, the, the whole impetus for these proceedings in the first place was what happened to that Wilkinson report? Why aren't you releasing it? Um, so that could all go away. On the other hand, uh, if uh, Congress stops. Um, Congress stops investigating it, that takes away the partisan thing too, which means that he goes back to being a person who is probably bipartisanly quite unpopular in the local markets in Virginia, Maryland, and, and the district, um, which is where he actually needs action by government in terms of his stadium. Yeah, what are your thoughts on the Commander Stadium situation? This entire process has been far more difficult and has taken far longer than Dan Snyder and a lot of people ever anticipated. You know, I've always thought, like, football owners have a tough case when they want to um, get the public and taxpayers to pay for a stadium for them. You know, with baseball owners, that's 81 games a year. You really can make a case that this is going to change a neighborhood. Same with a basketball, hockey arena, that's about 80 games a year. Uh, football, you've got eight or nine games a year. That's pretty tough to say to the taxpayers, hey, we want you to pony up you know, hundreds of millions of dollars that could be spent on schools or whatever, um, and we want you to give it to me instead. And so you you have that. That's a national phenomenon. Then you add on top of that the fact that the team has been bad, that the owner has sort of been in bad headlines with all kinds of self-inflicted PR boo-boos and bad behavior, allegedly, 
all that stuff, you know, that makes it all the harder. I think at this point where our, where our politics are nationally, you know, Mother Teresa could own a football team and would still have some convincing to do yeah. when it came to getting public subsidies. But uh, Snyder's own unpopularity and the fact that the team has been kind of lousy, um, that doesn't help matters. And, you know, I, I hate to say it, but if they were winners, things, things are always easier when you're winning, I guess. No doubt. Uh, you are a native of the Washington, D.C. area. Where do you think that we're headed with Dan Snyder as owner of the Commanders? Do you think that we are in the midst of the end of Dan as owner of the team, or, or are you more along the lines of, I'll believe it when I see it? Honestly, I'll believe it when I see it. I, I, I hear from so many people, you know, this really could be the final the straw that breaks the camel's back. And this, you know, if we can only get him on this accounting stuff, we can really get rid of him. And, uh, uh, so much of that is involved with wishful thinking on the part of people who are basically fans of the team. And um, so all the people who I think of as smartest about sports and, the, and sports culture right now, I, um, I kind of distrust them because <laughs> so much of what they're saying is wishful thinking. I hear you. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, you were an editor for the Washington City paper in 2011 when Dan Snyder famously sued the paper. Uh, the lawsuit was based on a piece that came out in November 2010. The headline of the piece, The Cranky Redskins Fan's Guide to Dan Snyder. And Dan filed a lawsuit in February 2011, then dropped the lawsuit in September 2011. He, in an interview with the New York Times that year, admitted to never having actually read the city paper piece that prompted his lawsuit. Uh, what was that entire experience like from your vantage point as editor? Oh, boy. I, I would uh, recommend to everyone never get sued by a tycoon. It's, um, <laughs> you know, we were a really little paper. Uh, the paper had been in bankruptcy previously, and we were really worried this would end a paper. And it was really scary. And every, you know, internal relationship we had was kind of stressed by it. Um, you know, tensions between editors and writers and editors and their bosses and and so on. Um, you know, it, it, that said, and I would always say this to the young reporters, look, usually when you get sued, you know, you've kind of screwed up. And the person suing you is kind of a sympathetic person. It's like a community leader or a civilian bystander or something. And you kind of look like a jerk, like you're the big, bad media assholes. And in this case, we were literally sued by what was probably the least popular person in the entire metropolitan region. So that um, that got us a lot of support. Uh, again, if they'd been winning, we might not have had support. But we had you know people kicking into a, a legal defense fund for us. We had it was really you know kind of an amazing thing um, about the, said a lot about the paper and its and its uh, and its history. Um, you know, all that said, I would really would rather it never happened in the first place. <laughs> I gotcha. What about the fact that Dan Snyder admitted to never having actually read the piece? I just find that hysterical. He filed a lawsuit over something that he himself never actually read. That was wild. I mean, I'm not, I, 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 the whole thing from beginning to end was wild. They sent a letter at the beginning that said something to the effect of, you know, the cost of defending yourself against this suit could soon outstrip the value of this asset, um, which was basically saying we're going to um, we're going to use the, the process of the suit to um, 
to bankrupt you. Uh, and that is a, a no, 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 um, in, in, uh, in courts, you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to do that. Uh, so, you know, they, 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 they were just, uh, there was a lot of blunderous mistakes there, uh, in that process for them. And it wound up, you know, wound up blowing up in their face. It was, it again, terribly painful for us and it didn't feel heroic at all. Um, but, uh, but it was, it was another, you know, I sort of got the sense that it was like a you know, Shakespeare play or something where the crazy king is ranting, you know, do this, get rid of these people. And, and all the, the underlings are running around and, and, uh, and, uh, uh, doing things that are ill-advised in order to uh, to placate the crazy king. Um, that's what it felt like, at least on the inside. That's not at all a bad analogy for Dan Snyder. Do you know why he dropped his lawsuit against the Washington City paper and dropped the lawsuit rather quickly, just seven months after filing the suit? I think it would have gotten tossed out of court. Uh, there is, uh, there, there, there's... There's a, uh, I'm not a lawyer, so I might, I might mangle this explanation. Uh, there's something called SLAP, called Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation. And if you can demonstrate that the real reason someone is suing you is not the reason listed on the suit, like if I am, uh, say you and me are in a dispute because like I'm a, you're building an extension on your house and it's next door to mine and I want you to stop it. And then I sue you for an alleged slip and fall. Um, and I say, aha, well, I'll drop the suit if you can if you stop building that extra deck on your house. Um, and you can prove that, then you can get the case tossed out of court really easily um, because it will. you can demonstrate that I'm not actually suing you for the reason I'm suing you. Um, and in, in this case, um, uh, you know, what we believed, and I think it's true, that what they really wanted was to get the, the writer to stop writing about him. And um, that is not something you're allowed to. Yeah. The, court, the courts don't decide that in this country. Interesting. Uh, Michael Schaefer, senior editor at Politico, the latest installment of his uh, Capital City column in Politico magazine is worth your time. Headline, Dan Snyder's secret weapon, Republicans. Investigators are circling and fellow NFL owners are fuming. But on Capitol Hill, D.C.'s least popular man is a surprise partisan cause. Michael, thank you for your time and all the best to you. Hey, thanks, man. All right, good stuff from Michael Schaefer. A political perspective on the Dan Snyder scandals. Up next, I'm talking Nationals. Uh, they had been doing well, and then Monday night happened. Uh, what happened with Eric Fetty? I'll get to that and much more after this. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Indeed. 
Well, in this rebuilding season in which the Nationals already have been humbled quite a bit, I guess what happened on Monday night should have been expected. The Nats were coming off their first series win in nearly a month. Uh, the Nats won three or four games against the Colorado Rockies at Nationals Park Thursday through Sunday. The Nats' previous series win had been taking two or three games at the San Francisco Giants April 29th through May 1st. It had been a while since the Nats had won a series this season. Uh, in fact, the Nats came out of that series win against the Rockies, having won four or five games and with a chance to improve to 19 and 31 on the season. 19 and 31, of course, is a magical record for the Nats because 19 and 31 was a low point of their 2019 season, which, of course, ended up being a World Series championship season. Well, the Nats instead uh, now are 18 and 32 this season because the Nats on Monday night got stomped at the National League's leading New York Mets. 13-5 was the final in game one of a three-game series in game one of a 10-game road trip. Uh, a terrible game for Eric Fetty. You know, Fetty had been the Nats' best starting pitcher so far this season. He came into the game on Monday night with an ERA this season of 355. That's pretty good, okay? Especially by 2022 Nationals starting pitching standards, okay? And especially by Eric Fetty standards. Nine starts this season, ERA of 355. But Fetty on Monday night got wrecked six runs in one and a third innings. He gave up a lot of hard contact. Uh, he gave up eight hits, a homer, a double, and six singles. He issued one walk. He recorded no strikeouts. He, in his one and the third innings, threw 52 pitches. I mean, this just was not good. Uh, Fetty, in the bottom of the first, allowed two runs. He began the inning by giving up three consecutive singles and then issuing a walk. Fetty, in the bottom of the second, allowed four runs. He, in the inning, faced five batters and got just one out. Uh, Fetty gave up a first pitch leadoff opposite field single to Mark Canna to right field. Gave up an RBI double to Nick Plummer to left center field. Gave up a one-out RBI single to Luis Guillorme to left center field on an 0-2 pitch. Gave up a one-out two-run homer to Starling Marte to left field for a 6-3 Mets lead. Gave up a one-out single to Francisco Lindor up the middle, despite Lindor having been down in the count at 1.02. And then that was it. Nats manager Davey Martinez pulled Fetty from the game. One and a third innings for Eric Fetty on Monday night. Here was Davey during his post-game session with reporters on Monday night on what happened with Fetty. Wasn't there for him today. Um, you know, his misses were almost right, right down the middle um, to a good hitting team. So um, it didn't happen for him today, but, you know, we'll get him back, uh, you know, five days and, and get him back out there. But um, it's just a just a bad day for Fetty today. He's been so good for most of May. Um, why why is there a night where it's not just one or two balls in the middle of the plates? You know, a big handful of them. Yeah, he, and everything was, um, the location was, like I said, um, I mean, it, you could say he's throwing strikes, but you know they're right down the middle, and um, he, he, he knows he can't be down the middle. So, um, like I said, well, I told him today. I said, hey, look, um, some days you're gonna have bad days. You know, we, we just gotta forget about it. Come back tomorrow and get your work in, and um, get get back, get ready for you know your next start. I mean, that's all you can do. Yeah, this was the second blow-up start for Eric Fetty this season. The first blow-up start for Fetty this season came in an 11-2 loss to the Arizona Diamondbacks at Nationals Park on April 20th. Fetty in that game allowed seven runs, six earned in three and a third innings. But at least in that game, he lasted for three and a third innings. Fetty on Monday night, a mere one and a third innings. So 
10 starts for Fetty this season now, two awful starts. The other eight starts for the most part have been good, but even with that being the case, his ERA for the season now is 460. Yeah, Fetty's ERA for the season on Monday night ballooned from 355 to 460, and not much better on Monday night was the Nats bullpen. Uh, Four Nats relievers on Monday night combined to allow seven runs in six and two-thirds innings. Uh, Andres Machado relieved Eric Fetty, but Andres Machado allowed three runs in one and a third innings. You know, Mets three-run third gave up three runs on three singles and two walks. Second consecutive day, by the way, on which Machado struggled. Machado in the Nats 6-5 win over the Rockies at Nationals Park on Sunday afternoon in the top of the seventh, allowed two runs. He began the inning by giving up a single, a double, and then an RBI single. Uh, Austin Voth on Monday night struggled. Three runs in one and a third innings. He and Mets three-run fourth gave up three runs on three consecutive one-out hits, the last of which was a first-pitch three-run homer by Nick Plummer to left center field for a 12-3 Mets lead. And then, because both Machado and both struggled, Davey Martinez ended up pitching both of his longmen, Paolo Espino and Josh Rogers. Now, understand the Nats right now do not have a scheduled starting pitcher for Wednesday afternoon's game three at the Mets. Presumably, either Espino or Rogers was a candidate to start that game. Perhaps both guys still are candidates to start that game. But each guy ended up pitching on Monday night because of the struggles of Eric Fetty, Andres Machado, and Austin Voth. Now, Paolo Espino on Monday night was very good again. Uh, Espino tossed three scoreless innings. He gave up just one hit, which was a single. He issued just one walk. He threw a bunch of strikes, 48 pitches, 32 strikes versus 16 balls. Davey Martinez this season has basically limited Paolo Espino to pitching at the ends of blowouts, either blowout wins or blowout losses. And Paolo has pitched in a lot of low leverage innings. That is true. But Paolo also has pitched quite well. Paolo Espino now this season has an ERA of 228. And I have wondered and now am wondering even more now, how about we see some more of Paolo Espino and in some bigger spots? I mean, I have no delusions of him being some dominant pitcher for the Nats. But at the same time, the guy, for the most part, was good last season. His numbers ended up dipping as the season went on, but he, for a good chunk of last season, was one of the real pleasant surprises for the Nats. And Paolo Espino, so far this season, has been among the more effective pitchers for the Nats out of their bullpen. I mean, again, ERA for the season of 228, and he was the only Nats pitcher on Monday night who pitched well. Uh, Josh Rogers on Monday night had his problems. He, in the bottom of the eighth, allowed a leadoff homer to Pete Alonso. So we'll see what ends up happening with that Nats starting pitching scenario for Wednesday afternoon. But uh, the plans, whatever they may have been, uh, may have been ruined by what happened on Monday night with Eric Fetty, Andres Machado, and Austin Voth all struggling. By the way, the Nats don't have a scheduled starter for Wednesday afternoon because their number five starter, Aaron Sanchez, was DFA'd over the weekend. Uh, The Nats late night on Saturday night announced that they had designated Sanchez for assignment and kept Machado on their 40-man roster. Machado earlier in the day had been appointed as the Nats' 27th man for their doubleheader against the Rockies at Nationals Park. Sanchez, in game one of that doubleheader split, uh, was not good. Uh, This was actually a Nats win, a 13-7 Nats win over the Rockies at Nationals Park on Saturday afternoon. But Sanchez in that game, seven runs in three and two-thirds innings. You know, the Nats in that game scored eight runs over the first two innings, and yet Sanchez didn't even last for four innings. He was really bad. Uh, Sanchez over seven major league starts for the Nats this season, an ERA of 833, 
a whip of 176. Just not good. I mean, the Nats in March signed Aaron Sanchez to a minor league deal. He was worth a shot, okay? I mean, you take a low-cost flyer on a guy like Aaron Sanchez, who at one time was quite good for the Toronto Blue Jays. There's nothing wrong with that, but he was a reclamation project, and the reclamation did not happen. And so Aaron Sanchez has been DFA'd, and right now there is uncertainty with who the Nats starting pitcher will be on Wednesday afternoon. Uh, the Nats' offense on Monday night was good. Uh, the Nats did lose the game 13-5, but the Nats put up five runs, 10 hits, five walks, three for 10 with runners in scoring position. Josh Bell had a nice game. He is a Nats starting first baseman and number five batter, went three for four with a two-run single, an RBI single, and another single. Uh, Bell in the Nats' three-run first as the Nats again this season had a productive first inning in a game, uh, a one-out bases-loaded first pitch opposite field two-run single to right field for a 2-0 Nats lead. Bell in the top of the third had a one-out single through the left side of the infield. Bell in the Nats one-run fifth had a two-out RBI single through the left side of the infield to cut the Nats deficit to 12-4. Cesar Hernandez is hot right now, and he on Monday night had another good game. He is an at starting second baseman and number one batter, went three for five with an RBI single and two other singles. Uh, Hernandez in the top of the second, a one-out infield single. Hernandez in the Nats one-run fifth, a leadoff single to left field. Hernandez in the Nats one-run sixth, a one-out RBI single to right center field to cut the Nats deficit to 12-5. The RBI single scored, by the way, Alcides Escobar, who in the inning had a one-out opposite field triple to the right center field gap. Uh, Escobar has been a bit better lately. I want to give him credit for that. But Cesar Hernandez has been terrific lately. And he, in the Nats series win over the Rockies at Nationals Park, was awesome. Uh, Cesar Hernandez in that series over the four games, seven for 16 with three doubles, four singles, and three walks. You know, Cesar Hernandez for the bulk of this season has been racking up singles, but he only recently started to work some walks and hit some doubles. And consequently now, he's looking more like an appropriate number one batter in a lineup. Now, he still doesn't hit for enough power for my liking, but he's getting on base at a nice clip here. Cesar Hernandez this season now has an on-base percentage of 345. I mean, that's pretty good. Uh, Also good for the Nats in their series win over the Rockies at Nationals Park was Victor Robles. Uh, now, he did have some boo-boos in the series, but he overall was very productive. Uh, Robles over the four games in the series, seven for 16 with a home run and six singles, and he went four of four on stolen bases. Now, Robles on Monday night did not do so well. Uh, he is an at starting center fielder, a number eight batter, went 0 for four with a strikeout and left four men on base, though he did have a really nice defensive play uh, Robles in the Mets' four-run second made a great diving forward backhanded catch of a liner off the bat of Tomas Nito uh, for the first out. But I did want to make mention of that defensive play by Robles and also his offensive success in that series win over the Rockies. Uh, Juan Soto on Monday night as an at starting right fielder and number three batter, one for four with a double and a walk. Uh, Soto in the Nats, three-run first through a one-out six-pitch walk. Soto in the top of the ninth, and what was basically garbage time, uh, had a double, a two-out full-count double to the right center field gap. Uh, Soto did have a big game on Sunday afternoon in that 6-5 Nats win over the Rockies at Nationals Park, two for three with a two-run homer, a double, and a walk. You know, Soto entered that game with an OPS for this season of just 795. We are not used to the Juan Soto OPS beginning with a 7. Usually, 
that Juan Soto OPS begins at least with an eight, if not a nine, if not a one point something. Uh, but Soto so far is not having the kind of season that we're used to Juan Soto having, but he did have a good game on Sunday afternoon. And, you know, it's not like his numbers for the season are hideous. It's just that his numbers for the season are not uh, Juan Soto-like, right? There clearly is another level that Juan Soto can get to, and he has not yet gotten to that level consistently this season. Game two for the Nats at the Mets is on Tuesday night at 7-10. Patrick Corbin will be the Nats starting pitcher. Well, what was an absolute gauntlet for the Orioles now is over. Uh, A stretch of 15 consecutive games against teams in the American League East, and the O's over those 15 games ended up going 7-8. and Uh, Not great, obviously, but you know what? Not too shabby for a rebuilding and tanking team as the O's are. Uh, Capping off this stretch of 15 straight games against teams in the AL East was a five-game Memorial Day weekend series at the Boston Red Sox. Yes, a five-game series. This was like an ALDS for the O's and the Red Sox, and the O's won the series. The O's advanced to the ALCS three games to two. A Friday night, an improbable 12-8 win. Saturday, a split of a doubleheader, a 5-3 loss on Saturday afternoon, but then a 4-2 win on Saturday evening. Sunday afternoon, a 12-2 loss, but Monday night, a 10-0 win as the O's, Joe Angel, were back in the win column. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, Joe, the win column. Uh, the O's this season now are 21 and 29. The Orioles' offense had some big games in this series, including Monday night's 10 nothing win. Uh, the O's on Monday night, 14 hits and two walks, and eight of the 14 hits were extra base hits, three homers, two triples, and three doubles. And all of this happened with center fielder Cedric Mullins not playing in the game. Uh, Mullins is really struggling this season. He got the night off on Monday night. Uh, Ryan Mountcastle did not have the night off on Monday night. He was a monster on Monday night. Mountcastle, as the Orioles starting first baseman and number three batter, four for five with a solo homer, a double, and two singles. And take a listen to the specifics of what he did. He and the Orioles two-run first had a one-out full-count solo homer despite having been down in the count at 1.02. He and the Orioles two-run third had a one-out full-count single. He and the Orioles two-run fifth had a double, despite having been down in the count at 1.02. And he and the Orioles three-run ninth had a one-out single on a 1-2 pitch. Uh, you know, Mountcastle has not had a great season so far, but he had a great night on Monday night. And, you know, hopefully by the end of this season, we are looking at Ryan Mountcastle as having produced as O's fans uh, expected him to produce this season off him hitting last season an Orioles rookie record 33 home runs. O's manager Brandon Hyde during his postgame session with reporters on Monday night on Ryan Mountcastle. Yeah, it was a matter of time for him for me. Um, you know, Ryan's going to put up big numbers at the end of this year. It's just, he's just got to be a little bit patient, and the homers are going to come, the hits are going to come. Love seeing him go the other way. Uh, so, yeah, he's just, he's a good, really good hitter, and when he swings it, like I've said a million times, when he swings the strikes, good things happen, and he had really good plate discipline tonight. 
Yeah, Ryan Mountcastle this season now has an OPS of a 710. Trey Mancini had a big night on Monday night. He is the Orioles starting DH and number two batter. Three for four with an RBI triple, two singles and a walk. He and the Orioles two run first had the RBI triple. Anthony Santander on Monday night as the Orioles starting left fielder at number four batter. One for four with a three run homer and an RBI sack fly in the Orioles two run fifth had the RBI sack fly, and he and the Orioles' three-run ninth smashed a one-out three-run homer. Ramon Arias on Monday night as the Orioles' starting third baseman and number five batter, one for five, but the one was a homer, a two-out two-run homer in the Orioles' two-run third, and the Orioles' two-run fifth had a one-out RBI ground out. Adley Rutschman on Monday night as the Orioles' starting catcher, number six batter, had a double and a single. You know, Rutschman so far has not done great at the major league level, but he did have a couple of hits on Monday night. Uh, the Orioles' 12-8 win at the Red Sox on Friday night was tremendous. Uh, the O's in that game overcame an 8-2 seventh inning deficit by scoring 10 runs over the final three innings. This marked the first Orioles regular season victory in which they overcame a deficit of at least six runs since August 14, 2016. The Red Sox on Friday night at one point had a win expectancy for fan graphs of 98.9%, and yet the O's ended up winning the game. Uh, Austin Hayes, another big hit this season in this game. He has the Orioles starting right fielder and number four batter, two for four with a two-run homer, a single, and a walk. He and the Orioles three-run eighth smashed a two-run homer to cut the Orioles' deficit to 8-7. He and the Orioles' four-run ninth drew a seven-pitch walk despite having been down in the count at one point, 1-2. Anthony Santander on Friday night was big. He is the Orioles' starting left fielder and number three batter, two for four with a two-run homer, a single, and a walk. He and the Orioles' two-run fourth smashed a one-out two-run homer. He and the Orioles' three-run eighth drew a leadoff five-pitch walk. He and the Orioles' four-run ninth had a tie-breaking RBI single for a 9-8 Orioles lead. Jorge Mateo on Friday night as the Orioles' starting shortstop and number nine batter. One for five, but the one was a big one. A one-out three-run homer in the Orioles' three-run seventh. So a lot of big hits by the Orioles in this series. Heck, the 4-2 win at the Red Sox on Saturday evening in game two of the doubleheader split included Rugdad Odor as the Orioles starting second baseman and number seven batter going one for four with the one being a three-run homer. He had an Orioles four-run third, smashed a two-out three-run homer. So lots of good stuff from Orioles hitters in this series. And the O's needed that offense because their starting pitching in the series was not good. Uh, the only truly good outing that the O's in this series got from a starting pitcher was Tyler Wells outing on Monday night. Uh, Wells in the Orioles 10-0 win at the Red Sox on Monday night was great. Six scoreless innings. He gave up just two hits, a double and a single. He issued just one walk. He recorded three strikeouts and he threw a lot of strikes. Uh, Wells on Monday night over 88 pitches, 64 strikes versus just 24 balls. Uh, Brandon Hyde during his postgame session with reporters on Monday night was asked if that was the best that he has seen from Tyler Wells. It is. That was that was six innings, hardly any traffic. Only gave up only gave up a couple hits. Not many punch outs, but I thought he had all four pitches working, working ahead in the count the entire night. His fastball velocity stayed throughout the six innings and a uh, bunch of good sliders, dumper curve balls, change up was really good. Um, 
kept guys off balance, was just threw a ton of strikes, was, was outstanding. Yes, he was. Uh, Tyler Wells' outing on Monday night marked a fifth time in seven starts that he lasted for at least five innings and allowed two runs or less. He's doing a good job here. Remember, Tyler Wells is making the transition from reliever to starter. Well, Tyler Wells now, 10 starts this season. He has an ERA of 371. That's pretty good. Uh, but the rest of the Orioles' starting pitchers in this series were not so good. Uh, Kyle Bradish in Game 1 struggled for a third consecutive start. Uh, Bradish in the Orioles' 12-8 win at the Red Sox on Friday night. Six runs in one and two-thirds innings. He gave up six hits, a homer, a double, and four singles. He issued a walk in two hit-by pitches. He over 62 pitches through just 33 strikes versus 29 balls. You know, Bradish was good in two of his first three major league starts, but Bradish now has really struggled since then. He over six major league starts this season, has an ERA of 731. Uh, Jordan Lyles in game two of the series struggled. Lyles in the 5-3 loss at the Red Sox on Saturday afternoon in game one of the doubleheader split, three runs in four and a third innings. He gave up nine hits, three doubles and six singles, issued a walk, recorded three strikeouts. He over his four and a third innings through 93 pitches. Uh, Lyles this season now over 10 starts as an ERA of 426. Now the Orioles in game three of the series went with a bullpen game and the results actually were great. Five Orioles relievers in a 4-2 win at the Red Sox on Saturday evening in game two of the doubleheader split combined to allow two runs, one earned in nine innings. Denji Reyes, was the Orioles' starting pitcher in this game. Uh, Denji Reyes is a guy who the O signed as a minor league free agent this past November 29th. And Denji Reyes on Saturday evening at Fenway Park, one run in three and two-thirds innings. Uh, the O's on Saturday morning had added Reyes as their 27th man for the doubleheader. And then Reyes on Saturday evening in this bullpen game was followed by Joey Crable, Felix Batista, CNL Perez, and Jorge Lopez. And those four guys combined to allow one run in five and a third innings. I tell you, the Orioles' bullpen this season is doing a really good job. Uh, Monday night, three Orioles relievers combined for three scoreless innings. Dylan Tate tossed a perfect bottom of the seventh with two strikeouts. Tate this season now has an ERA of 180. The O's this season now have a relief pitching ERA of 315. But then we had what we had with Bruce Zimmerman in game four of the series. Uh, he struggled big time. Uh, he struggled for a third consecutive start. Zimmerman in the Orioles' 12-2 loss at the Red Sox on Sunday afternoon. Six runs in four innings. He gave up five home runs. Yes, Zimmerman on Sunday afternoon gave up five home runs, tying an Orioles franchise record for the most home runs given up by a pitcher in a regular season game. Zimmerman now has allowed a jaw-dropping nine homers over his last two starts. You know, he had allowed just one home run over his first six starts this season. Now, incomprehensibly, he has allowed nine home runs over his last two starts. You look at Zimmerman's last two starts, a 9-6 Orioles win over the New York Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on May 19th. Zimmerman in that game, five runs in five innings. And then Zimmerman in a 7-6, 11-inning loss at the Yankees last Tuesday night, four runs in six into third innings. And the four runs came on four solo homers. So again, nine homers allowed by Zimmerman over his last two starts. I mean, this is a guy who over his first seven starts this season 
had an ERA at 272. Uh, not good what's happening with Bruce Zimmerman right now. Uh, also for the Orioles in this series win at the Red Sox, Cody Sedlock finally made his Major League regular season debut. Sedlock in the 12-2 loss on Sunday afternoon made his Major League regular season debut. One run in three innings with three strikeouts in serving as a reliever. The O's on Saturday morning selected the contract of Sedlock from AAA Norfolk. Now, you need to understand, Cody Sedlock had been struggling this season. Cody Sedlock over 29 in the third innings for Norfolk this season. ERA of 583. He, last season, over 93 innings for AA Bowie and AAA Norfolk had an ERA of 455. So this is not a guy whose minor league performance had been screaming, hey, call me up to the majors. Uh, Cody Sedlock was called up more out of necessity than anything else. But understand who Cody Sedlock is. The O's took Sedlock with the number 27 pick in the 2016 MLB draft out of the University of Illinois. And things just have not worked out for him so far in his professional career. Uh, This season is his age 27 season. So for now, this does appear to be a bust of a first round pick. Again, this was made back in 2016. So this is during the Buck Showalter, Dan Duquette era. But it is worth noting that Cody Sedlock finally on Sunday afternoon made his Major League regular season debut. Uh, Next up for the O's, an eight-game homestand, beginning with a three-game series against the Seattle Mariners at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Game one, Tuesday night at 7.05. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Wednesday show, episode 326, will feature plenty on the commanders who on Tuesday are beginning their second batch of OTA practices this offseason. Also on Wednesday show, I'll talk Nationals and Orioles. Game two for the Nats at the National League East leading New York Mets is on Tuesday night at 7-10. Game one for the O's in a three-game series against the Seattle Mariners at Oriole Park at Camden Yards is on Tuesday night at 7-05. Have a great rest of your Tuesday, and I'll talk to you on Wednesday. I think it's all about, probably all about the money, I guess. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.